Hey guys, welcome back to What's Up Universe. I'm sitting here with MK as usual. Hey, MK. Hey. It, MK has COVID right now, so MK is having a real good time. And this is an exciting episode because this is the first time we have other podcasters on our episode, which is great because we've kind of been living in a bubble. So this is Demystify Sci. Demystify Sci is the educational project of two Columbia-trained scientists, Dr. Shiloh DeLay and Dr. Anastasia Vinderbury, that traded the lab bench for the pen and the camera. They view science as a living discipline and untangle nature's mysteries in service of a more resilient human future through films, print, and podcast. We're so glad you guys are with us. Can you tell us a little bit about how the two of you met to start? It's kind of funny, actually. We we actually met at the interview for grad school, which is pretty funny. And uh, it turned out we happened we went to grad school in New York, but we happened to work across the street from each other at the time in San Francisco. And somebody pointed that out to us. And... Uh, yeah, we just became friends. We started uh, rock climbing together. We were both into that. And now here we it's are. 10 years later. And here we <laughs> 10 are, years yeah. later. Yeah. So are you guys partners? We are married. Okay, I couldn't tell based on everything I read. I was like, I don't know if these people are friends or if they're partners or if they're married or what they do. Mortal enemies. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be kind of a cool theme for a show. I wanted to start before I ask a little bit more about you guys. I, we started to discuss this before we hit record, but did you guys know who Grimes was at all? Yeah, definitely. I mean, without even knowing it, I, we listened to some Grimes this morning and I was like, oh, I know that song. I feel like I've looked at a lot of her visual stuff more than I've listened to the music because I've heard the music and it's, how do I put this? It's not quite the music that I would listen to to chill out. Like, mm -hmm. I'm so sensitive to music that I have to listen to stuff that's very chill because I'm not a chill person necessarily. And <laughs> in order to motivate that for myself, I'm like, I need to listen like soft piano music, things that are very relaxing and calm. But I, I've always really liked her aesthetics. Yeah, yeah she's not calm. <laughs> some, of the, some of the production's pretty chill, though. I mean, there's always like a driving beat. But yeah. So. yeah. Very pretty production stuff. Very etheric, etheric. I also knew her from, I mean, she, she, I don't think, she was never married to Elon Musk, but she had a baby with him, right? Two. I had no idea. That's going to be really interesting. I knew that much. Okay. So yeah, like that's, that, that's about our, our perspective on it. Well, I mean, that's more than most guests know. So you're ahead of the game, except for the <laughs> guests that have actually worked with Grimes. So before we recorded, Anastasia mentioned that you changed the name of the podcast. MK, talk about why we changed the name of the podcast. Recently, we decided to change it based on tweets that she made saying she wasn't really 100% in music anymore. And it's more like a side quest. So in honor of that and just basically people stalking her because of Elon and chasing down their children, we, we thought it was just best to change the name and have more guests on and expand it and open it up to more people that we can talk to, which was kind of naturally happening anyways. Why do you think that she has made music into a side quest? So a lot's happened in the last couple of years. When she met Elon, she went from one type of person to becoming a very different type of person. Then they end up having kids together and nobody really knows what's going on. We suspect they are still together or they're swinging together and will probably have more children. And I think that she became so overwhelmed emotionally with all the attention that Elon was getting, which then fell on her, that then she decided, I don't want to be in the spotlight anymore. So it wasn't just music she was talking about giving up in those tweets. It was really fame that she's like, I want no part of this. And that's ultimately why we decided, let's just change the name of the podcast. Plus, we had another guest on that had recommended it to us just because, hey, you're going to get more people on that are up your alley if you don't have Grimes in the name of the title because nobody knows who Grimes is for the most part. 
Yeah, you guys I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can stuff fame back in the box after it's out. Yeah. I, I wonder. Yeah. It seems like it's this. It's a real deal with the devil. You don't get out of. Yeah. I feel bad for people though. Yeah, just getting mobbed and. We we had a friend who one time talked about getting something that he wanted and then being overwhelmed by it, as if he was pulling on the like power cord of a TV that was on a shelf above him and it like crashed down on his head. Oh, not it didn't actually happen. It was like this weird metaphor that he just yeah. like came up with in the moment. And I just I I've I've always thought about that in terms of being out in the world and aiming for being known. Because at some point that gets away from you. Yeah, like if you work in media, there's no way around the fact that you're trying to reach a lot of people, right? It's like your whole job description essentially. Like your growth is directly tied to how many people listen to your podcast and stuff like that. So so you want to yeah. be known. You want to be known, but you want to be able to walk down the street too. Yeah, and MK and I have definitely had that conversation too, because we always talk about how much we want to disclose about our personal lives and about our careers versus keeping that in the box. But like you guys said, I think the narrative gets away from you. And that's what happened to Grimes is her narrative was one way. And then she got with Elon and it became a totally different hmm. capitalist type narrative. And then she couldn't escape it. And so it became too much for her. We decided to respect that. Did her art change at that time too? Like. I just think it's not being shared. I think she probably has amazing stuff going on. She's just not sharing it with us. Mm. She's not as open. She's more closed off. She's trying to have a boundary now. Mm. But like you said, once you open that Pandora's box, you can't put it back in. So I think she's just tried to have a normal life. And it's probably prompted by the children, too. She has very, very small children. So Yeah, I think it's hard for like normal people like us to imagine not being able to, you know, take a walk in your neighborhood or go to the pool or go to the beach, just do the things that normal people do. It must be really punishing after. It's probably fun for like a week and then it's like, oh no. (laughs) That's what I think. It's probably fun at times when it gets you places. But speaking of podcasting, how did you guys start your podcast? Take us back to that. I mean, it really comes down to us going through the gears of the academic machinery and like doing our PhDs and then kind of realizing that there's like some stinky stuff in science and that the entire concept of science had been sort of captured and abused and a lot of people... We went into grad school as idealists, I think. I think that we thought we were going to show up to the hallowed halls of science and we were going to encounter people that were motivated solely by the free spirit of inquiry. We want to find the truth, but that wasn't what we found. And we finished grad school, you know, and we were kind of like, well, we're not going to keep doing this. We're not going to stay inside of this machine. So we happened to be really excited about a lot of topics that people thought they'd understood previously, but hadn't really. And so we dug kind of into the fringes of science and started talking to all kinds of lunatics. Well, we did this thing first where we we finished grad school and we drove around for four months living out of the back of a CRV. And it was the dumbest thing that we've ever done because we built this (laughs) bed frame out of PVC and like greenhouse sheeting because we didn't have any money. We were grad students. And we built the bed so quickly that we didn't realize that we couldn't lean the the front seats back because it was like right up against them. And so we spent four months kind of like hunched forward, sleeping on this bed. But in the middle of the night, yeah, my neck's still fucked up from this. We would like continuously like punch through the plastic sheeting, so you'd like wake up in the middle of the night, like an elbow down in the like the hold, and you'd have to like get out and fix it. And the goal of it was we were like, look, 
we want to do something really ethical. We want to travel around and we want to figure out how to have an ethical business. And so we interviewed a lot of people for what was going to be a documentary about worker ownership. Worker ownership. Yeah. Do you guys know what worker ownership is? Mm-hmm. Right on. Yeah. So we were like really stoked on it as like the cure for all of the world's ailments. But we had no idea how to do any of it. And so we recorded everything on a cell phone camera with no external microphones and didn't look at any of the footage until we were done because we were like, we're getting really good stuff. And then it was just utterly, it was useless. It was just like, and it was cool. We learned a lot, but it didn't really work out. And so when we started writing... Well, we like we basically were trying to get as far from Manhattan as possible because we'd had enough of the Chrome Canyons and everything. So we found the place with the most trees, which was like basically Portland area. Oregon. And then COVID hit. Yeah, we got stuck there. <laughs> and we lost. We were both working. Like uh, we were teaching, and I was guiding. And so there was there was this moment where it's like everything shut down, and we were like, well, "What the hell are we going to do for the next year?" And so we started writing these pop size stories. But the pop size stories are really difficult because you have editors, and the editors will like you want to say one thing because we had all these ideas about science that nobody else has, and journalism doesn't work where you can just tell people your ideas. You have to find people who are reputable who can say the thing that you want to say. And we couldn't find people who would do that. And so we started interviewing people and we started the podcast, but we didn't want to be on camera, but we knew that we had to have a <laughs> For video. the exact reasons we were talking about. <laughs> yes. Reasons. We're like, we're going to protect our faces forever. We're going to blow this thing up, but we're not going to be on screen. <laughs> so we made puppets. We made little alien puppets. And uh, that went over like a Led Zeppelin. We would interview people as the puppets. And so we were like for, for up to three hours, like... We had this set up in our living room because we lived in basically a like our bedroom was behind a curtain. Then there was the studio. (laughs) Then there was the kitchen. So it was like we (laughs) lived in like a single room and we had this setup where we had like chair. We would sit on the ground and we would have the puppets like above our heads and we would be puppeting as we talked to people. But we sucked at puppeting. We built the puppets ourselves. We built the puppets ourselves, so the puppets were, like, really janky, and we kind of sucked at puppeting, and we had somebody who came on the show who was like, you can't keep doing this. Yeah, I mean, you, you guys can imagine, like, half of having a conversation with someone is, like, being able to look at them, like, read their face and things like that. Well, I'm not imagining because I saw some of those. Okay. And I have notes. Yeah, they're still out there. <laughs> they're still out there. I, I take notes on our guests. We both do before we talk to them. And I have a note here that has the actual clip that says they use puppets in some of their clips. And I was going to ask you about that. So, yeah, yes, especially I've seen if those. you guys, if you only found like the original YouTube channel, like we have a new YouTube channel that looks more like this. But uh, that's, yeah, that stuff's definitely out there. <laughs> According to the research I did, you guys have demystify sci investigates material atomics, demystify yep. clips, and demystify lectures. Is that still correct? Yeah, there's our main podcast channel is just called the Demystify Sci Podcast, um, and that's on YouTube and stuff everywhere. Mm. Yeah, the puppets were just like it was. It, I think that everybody thought that it was a children's show. And so, but then it was like the worst children's show ever. Yeah, because we would be like, "So tell us about the difference between a virus and an endosome." And the guys like, "I thought that this was a kids' show." <laughs> and I just, it was kind of, it was, it was very chaotic. It was fun. It was fun. I thought that they were cute. I think that what really killed it for us is that we did this, that we did this video about whether or not math is a language, 
Mm. Have you have you ever heard somebody say that before? Like mathematics mm-hmm. is the language Math of the universe. Math is the language of the universe. Yes. And, and we're like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Math's not a language. <laughs> and so <laughs> And so we scripted this entire thing. We made a set where, like, the two, Mickey and Quinn were the puppets, and Mickey and Quinn were like, uh, they had arrived to Earth and they were like trying to steal a car because Quinn wanted to go to the diner and get pancakes or something. And while they're doing all of this, they're having this conversation about whether or not math is a language. And I looked at it and I was like, this is our finest work. This is amazing. I loved doing it. It was so much fun. Like we green screened the car scene and everything. It was like quite a production. Yeah, like we actually filmed like in the car where we had, we like stretched the green screen across the side of the car and we like made a video of us driving down the street that was like, it was like. like, We worked so hard on this thing and just. 200 people watched it. No, but. (gasps) 600 Yeah, it was terrible. And like, it was the worst response ever. I just remember being like, this, this, we need to bury this project. Like, this is the end of days. It just, it was so, it was so heartbreaking. It was really, and and now it's very funny because I still look at it and I'm very, I love it. I still show that one with my students at the university. (laughs) I love that video. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? You put so much into one component of your project and you're like this is nailing it we're killing it right now and then you watch it and you're like oh no you kind of have to separate yourself a little bit from it it's so weird in art in general like we do a lot of music too by the way if you guys can see this our studio oh Oh, okay Um, but it's such a nightmare that like you you can make something that you love and it's not necessarily something somebody else is gonna love and it's it's such a weird chasm and then the things that people end up loving are the things that you're kind of like no, it was all right, but like, what about this? And they're like, nah. Yeah, you have no that. ownership of that narrative, right? You put it out there and people are going to respond however they want. You see this with musicians too, where it's like, uh, there's a guy that I really like, uh, Bill Callahan. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this song called Bathosphere. When he performed actually under a different name, he was Smog at the time. And I think it's far and away his best song by, by a long shot, but he never plays it in concert anymore. Everybody always requests it, but it's it's been 20 years. Can you imagine making something 20 years ago that everybody agrees is your best you piece of work? You gotta play it every night. Well, talk to us a little bit about your music because I had no idea you made music till right now. Yeah. Shiloh is the, the brains of this operation. I wouldn't say that. Oh, come on. He's been, so this was the most incredible thing. Like Shiloh's the hardest worker of anybody that I have ever met in my entire life and has <laughs> maybe the like highest executive function of anybody that I've ever met. And so I'm gradually trying to steal all of that from me. Or not steal, mirror it. I want you to keep it. Yeah. But know. I don't know about that. He's I'm sure re- Elon's got me beat. I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> he's been recording music since what? Since you were like 15. And we were in grad school and I was barely keeping my head above water mm-hmm. in terms of just everything that that was. And Shiloh is like coming home every day after work and he's going into a studio and he was producing like a song a month where he played all of the instruments. He played like the bass, the guitar, the keyboard. He got this insane like 12 stringed resonant instrument from India called the Dilruba that you bow that he figured out how to play. It's a beautiful instrument. Yeah. It is a beautiful instrument. And he writes these like incredibly beautiful and meaningful songs and i just i've like watched this for the last 10 years in absolute awe well nasi writes songs too as it turns out (laughs) 
So yeah, we got like a cool little project going right now where we're, everything's based, uh, like the heart of it is a sampler, which keeps, it's basically does all our MIDI, MIDI code for like beats and stuff. And then we can like bring in different pieces of the beats that way, but it's also clocked to two loopers. So each of us has a looper. So Nasty is playing bass, but she's looping that and also doing like keys, um, which you can kind of see over here. And then I'm like just looping guitar and then playing saxophone and some other stuff too. So it's like, uh, it's a whole new universe for us because I always played in bands growing up and I tried to do it professionally for a while, but the lifestyle is kind of a nightmare. So yeah, music, love it. Yeah. Can't live without it. Circling back to the podcast, how do you guys prepare for an upcoming episode? Shyla usually does a couple push-ups. Right before we go on camera. I mean, I think it's kind of better not to sometimes. And I mean, we, we kind of have different opinions about this. Nasty prepares really heavily. She reads people's papers. She watches their podcasts. I feel really bad if somebody comes on and I don't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, it's like... I, I, like if people come on our podcast and they're like, oh, I haven't had a chance to look into your stuff. I'm like, cool. That's great. You know, <laughs> doesn't matter at all. Because we're just here to talk about ideas or whatever. So, and honestly, I think it's like if they underestimate us, you know, if they, because sometimes it's like this, some of the worst kinds of scientists will come on and sort of treat you like children. So mm-hmm. I'm like, cool. If you want to like not know anything about us and just look like an ass, it's your fault. So, but yeah, we have we have different takes on that. I mean, I I don't know. I I go back and forth. Sometimes I like to be able to read people's stuff because people will send us their books, right? And if somebody's gone to the effort of sending me their book, I want to be able to at least understand the ideas inside of it so that we can start without you having to explain your idea. Because people feel really good when you can be like, "Hey, I read your stuff, and this is what I think that you're saying," and they're like, "Yeah, that is what I'm saying." And I'm like, "Okay, great. We can start from there." And a lot of the people we do know before they come on, like we know their stuff because we've sought them out and we're like, your theory is cool. Let's talk. about Yeah, it. yeah, exactly. Because it's very theory based. People will always be like, hey, this guy has this idea about this. And I say guy because it's been overwhelmingly men, but I'm trying to we're trying to change that because it's it's weird because I want to be able to have a 50 50 mix. But it's the women who are at the forefront of science are so in demand right now. Mm. And they, they don't seem to really like doing this kind of thing. It's very interesting. Like, we'll, we'll talk to, we'll invite women. There's plenty of women doing badass science, for sure. But for some reason, they're not into the, the getting up on stage and talking about it thing. There's like two clusters. There's people who are really, really important, and we just can't get to them yet because we don't have the reach. And then there's the other cluster, which is, no, I don't have time for that. Which... I respect, but then there's almost a couple times there's been this this flavor of, well, I'm do I, I don't have time for this in protest that I don't have that as a woman I do a lot more of the domestic work, and so I I can't do podcasts and I'm like well you should come on the podcast and talk about that because your protest will be more effective if you do it out loud in front of people, but... It probably comes down to the fact that their partner is shafting them or something, and they don't want to... Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of tragic. I think that happens a lot in this modern world. It's so interesting that you say that, because one of the female scientists that we had on, Heather Hoff uh, from Mothers for Nuclear, came on, and one of the first questions I asked her was about her kid. was about, like, oh, you have a child. Like, where's your child at right now? I've never asked a male participant that at all, 
Yeah, for some reason, to me, I knew she was a single mom. I did know that. But for some reason, that was one of my my questions for her was, how how involved is your kid? I've never asked a male guest that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's like the world that we're all growing up through is so much different than the one that's existed for millions of years. And I think it's just it's too much change too fast. And people haven't really figured out how to rearrange the the roles that the mother and father playing in that. I mean, she was a single mom. That's a whole different, I mean, but that's probably part of it too. Yeah. I don't think there was much single momage uh, for most of human history. I don't know. Men would probably go off and die in wars and stuff like that. Probably get replaced. I don't know. Yeah, but you would also live in a community, a multi-generational yeah, yeah. household. And so like, cause, cause I think about this all the time, right? So that's probably the biggest part. What does it look like for someone that doesn't have a lot of money, but has a project to have a child? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you how do you do that? Someone has to raise the child. And if you don't have a lot of money, you can't hire help. And so I think that it is a really pressing concern because we live in a time where where women more than ever are are entitled to a public role in a way that they never have before, right? And so there's glory in raising your kids. There's glory in keeping a house, in in doing all of that work. My mom is a stay-at-home mom and she was the best mom like we were always fed really well she had tons of time for us we're still fed really well we're still fed really well like we go to visit and she like sends me home with just this like 40 pound sack of homemade stuff and so i i understand the value of that because it's it's to have something like that in your life isn't valuable but at the same point she has this central tragedy where she's like i after we immigrated from the soviet union she never got another job. She was always a homemaker. And so she lives with this, 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 you know, this grit of sadness over it where she knows that the role that she's played is not in the world the, the way that she would have liked it to be. And so, yeah, I, I just... Humans got to figure this out. It's like, it's whole new circumstances. Yeah, because especially like even if people are working together and they have a business and then they have a kid together, you still have the question of, you know, for the first year, the baby physically needs the body of the mom. This is like mm. very personal, by the way. We're like literally like, can we have kids? Yeah, like, like how in the hell head. would that work? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like, yes, like, you know, like yesterday we spent six hours, like we spent four, almost four hours in a podcast. And then we had a meeting with somebody immediately afterwards for another hour. And it was like... Where would the bit? What would, is the baby like? Just <laughs> yeah, over like here? Like, what are we? Uh, how would this even happen? Yeah. So. You're like breastfeeding on camera. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's so interesting that you guys bring this up because MK and I talk about this all the time. So I do not have children yet. MK has two boys. MK, what do you think about this? It's true, but I have a very unique experience where my my husband has always been the homemaker. I've always been the one that works. And then I started doing this podcast too. Uh, But even despite that, I do feel pressures as a woman to be more involved in certain things. And it's by no means influenced by my husband. He's wonderful. He does everything to the best of his ability. It's really outside influences like family Mm. saying, well, why, why aren't you, why isn't MK doing this? Or, you know, it's always a family or a friend that looks at it like it's a bizarre weird situation because Mm. you know i don't really know many people that are in the situation either which is also interesting you think there'd be more of us was there like some period i mean there must have been a period at the beginning uh after 
each one of your kids was born where you can't replace the mother, right? Did you, did you have to take some, some six months or how long, how long did it take you before you were like back to your, your working role? I took four weeks off with my first and then six with the second. That's it? Yeah. Yeah. I know my, well, I was in a unique situation again with the first because I worked right below, like I lived upstairs from where I worked. It was Mm. a very unique, like it was a bit, the, the, uh, my boss had owned the building so I could live upstairs and just come upstairs and breastfeed. And I breastfed him for two years. So we just kind of worked with what we had, but it, it, I'm not saying it's not challenging. It's, and I, I'm not saying I don't have mom guilt either for not being around more. I think it's because I have such, I have a demanding job, but I also have flexibility now. And I think that from COVID, that's kind of been reevaluated, right? Where I get to be hybrid, I can be home and available to pick them up from school and drop them off. So I found a way to balance it, sort of, but. You know. that's, that's really encouraging, actually. Yeah. What uh, what do you what do you do for work? I work for a casino. I'm an analyst. Oh wow. Mm, cool. Yes. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Very corporate. <laughs> so, like an analyst in terms of like making sure that people aren't counting cards. Yeah. Uh, that and like anti money laundering compliance, just overall. Yeah. Risk management so, is like, my background. Like Ozarks <laughs> yes, style stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. People always bring up that show. <laughs> I was, oh man, it was one of the better we, ones we that we watched one, recently. Yeah. So but, for the two of you then, I heard Shiloh mention that you're teaching. Are both of you teaching? What are you doing right now between podcasting and, and making your money with your day jobs? Uh, yeah, so I'm teaching at uh, Southern Oregon University and uh We've taught at a few different universities together. Right now I'm teaching like in, very basic intro astrophysics. I did an intro astronomy last semester. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've taught all kinds of crazy stuff though. Uh, immunology of COVID, anatomy and physiology. Yeah, we had the chance to teach immunology of COVID while it was all going down, which was really interesting because we got to read all wow. the literature. And it was, it was interesting seeing like the science on one hand and then what was being messaged on the other was really shocking. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, we, we stay busy. Nastia is also a mountain guide, so she she takes people, you know. Uh, it's been weird because when we were living in Portland, there's a super active guiding scene there. And we, we moved about a year ago. And we moved to an area in southern Oregon that's much less trafficked. And so there's less of a, there's less of a scene here where there's almost, you can do like river rafting trips. Huh. But the same sort of backpacking circuit where I would take people on the PCT, we would climb Mount Adams, we would climb Mount St. Helens, we would do all of these, we would do a lot of stuff in the Portland area. And there isn't the same sort of infrastructure here. And so I've been spending the last year or so doing a lot of freelance writing and slowly trying to see if I can get, because I don't want to run a guiding company. Mm -hmm. And the option in front of me is either convince a guiding company that wants to move into this area that they should move into this area because there's demand and there's guides or or dedicate your life to it dedicate my life to making my own company and i i don't i don't have that i don't have the drive to it i mean we should we should also mention that like our main full-time job this year is going to be writing a book Mm. so we got funding to do that so it's kind of that's our full-time job now i mean we have a lot of other commitments it's kind of a dream come true because my entire life i've always wanted to be a paid writer and writing for for news outlets like i mentioned earlier is very it's a very discreet style 
you're reporting, mm. right? Like maybe if you're one of the few people that can get paid for being an opinion columnist, you can just say things. But the ability to write a book means, or the opportunity to write a book means that you can say the things that you want to say and you have space to do it in. And so it's really, it's kind of a dream come true. It's going to be a really good year. What's the Challenge. book on? We have to know. Okay. Well, like I kind of like mentioned earlier, we have trolled the fringes of science. We have been swimming with the lunatics. And <laughs> so the subtext for the book is something like notes from the scientific underground. And, mm. you know, we're always like, the thing is about completely crazy lunatic scientists is they always have like one really good idea buried down in there. I mean, these are people who have, they're usually like older. They've spent 20, 30, 40, 50 years studying some esoteric topic and they might have completely batshit insane ideas about it but they probably have some like really cool ideas too so the book is something like the next 10 scientific revolutions and we're picking on places in the understanding of the natural world that are crumbling in terms of mainstream understanding and we're trying to hint at what comes next just from what we've learned and uh so yeah there you go can you share one of those with us a little bit Oh, hell yeah. Okay, so my favorite one is about pole shift. Let's... Yeah, let's do the Earth. Sure, okay. the Earth. How about the, the Earth? Like, what is this rock thing that we're sitting on? And the traditional explanation is something like, well, all the planets basically formed right where they're at. Uh, you know, there's this big disk of debris that kind of collapsed in on itself. There's a star at the center, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but there's some issues with that. There's some actually really catastrophic issues with that. I mean, the Earth is, if not the most dense, it is among the most dense objects in the whole solar system. It's like five times more dense than the sun. Which is weird because you would expect that if everything formed as part of a uniform nebular cloud that collapsed in on itself, produced a protoplanetary disk, and then accreted material until you got a planet, that you wouldn't have such a huge disparity. Yeah, all the density. heavy shit should be at the center, right? Mm -hmm. if, if the whole thing's based on gravity. So this is a real problem. And so we, we got really interested in alternative ideas for what the Earth is, where it came from. And what's pretty cool is that recently the mainstream astronomers have been starting to think about how planets evolve a little bit differently. Actually, that idea of evolution being introduced into planetary sciences is kind of a huge paradigm leg up, right? Because we've traditionally thought about evolution as like animals, right? Mm -hmm. How did we come, you know, how did we get from ape-like things to hairless ape-like things or whatever? And so people are starting to think about that in terms of planets too, because what's really crazy is that if you look at something like Jupiter, it's basically a star. It's just not big enough. It's made out of all the same stuff. It has the same kind of layered structure and actually we have like some some pseudo stars that that are basically jupiters we call them brown dwarfs they're like a little more massive but about the same radius but uh, there's not a clear dividing line like there's no place where somebody the, the, people will have definitions of like a star fuses but a brown dwarf doesn't well brown dwarfs fuse little Small stuff. stuff right and so like <laughs> and then jupiter if it was a little bit bigger probably could also fuse stuff and so if it was larger in its formation it would be a brown dwarf if a brown dwarf is larger it would be a sun and like what's really crazy is the, the astronomers for the first time in the last 10 20 years have started to see other solar systems forming 
And what's crazy is they don't see the Jupiter-like stars, the gassy ones. They don't see them near the regions where we have them in our own solar system. They often find them very close to the star, and they're getting their atmospheres cooked away, right? They're shrinking down. The same thing's happening to like the water worlds, like the Neptunes. In our own solar system, we have a big blue ball that's that's very much full of all these ices, right? Water and ammonia and And those things are getting shrunk down too. And what's interesting is they have a core which looks a lot like the Earth in terms of composition. Like they're rocky planets that have a really big gaseous atmosphere. And so if if you don't have to form your big gassy giants on the far outskirts of the solar system where it's cold, they can appear close to the sun and they can lose their atmospheres, then that's a different path to creating an Earth which has all of this metal in it than the 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 sort of the accretion disk model and the reason that's significant is we probably should have started with this like if you if you've ever can integrate the accretion model i mean yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but like what the reason that this is interesting and we should have started with this is that if you look at the continents of the earth and you were to shrink the earth down like this uh they fit together And like perfectly, like puzzle pieces. Like with with some like little little bits and bobs that you have to kind of like deal with, but they fit together really well, like puzzle pieces. And there's an alternative theory to continental drift, which is that the the well, it, the not, planets didn't. The, so if you go back to Pangaea, you didn't just have a supercontinent. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, okay. hold on. Look, <laughs> we, 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 we all have this idea that there's this concept called plate tectonics. I'm sure you guys yep. like have heard about it. Mm-hmm. Right? So like if you follow that back to when that idea came about, there was actually two competing models at the time. One was that continental drift is what creates all of the shapes that we see on the planet. And In the other words, one... there was a big super continent at some point or it's maybe happened many times it pulled apart and we get what we have today maybe it'll go back together and this happens the other idea was just that the earth used to be in radius it used to be smaller and because so the continents fit together on that smaller earth much better than they do than they do on a larger earth and this is this means that the earth had to change size the problem was when these two theories were duking it out this was when back in the 50s it wasn't that long ago uh, 1950s. So the problem was the, the expansionists, as they were called, they had no mechanism, right? They were they had no way for the Earth to get bigger. And so all of the things they tried on was like trying to add material to it, right? Like, oh, the sun's shooting out stuff and it's adding on. But this just wasn't tenable. The mathematics didn't add up. You couldn't really make this happen. And so it kind of died and people were left with this continental drift concept that, you know, the because obviously the plates are moving. Nobody's questioning that. So, uh, and it's it's just it's an inconvenient thing to consider. Like the idea that the planet could get bigger if you don't have a mechanism. It, 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 that's the gold standard of science. If you're like, well, there's spooky. Like people are like, space is expanding inside of the planet, and that's why it's bigger. And you're like, that doesn't sound right. But <laughs> if you take this new thing that right. So if we go back the planet, to the planets. <laughs> So the planets, if they are formed as rocky objects with really thick atmospheres, the atmosphere can act as this girdle that keeps the planet small. Yeah, like all materials are elastic to some degree. Mm-hmm. That means like they're going to decompress and expand if that pressure is taken off the outside. So if you can imagine that the Earth is in fact quite old, right? I, I guess that doesn't even, it doesn't have to be that old, but like 
if you can imagine that it had this whole previous lifetime with a big, thick, heavy atmosphere that clamped it down, then as that atmosphere disappeared for whatever reason, and all these different processes could play into that, then the thing kind of just relaxed. And as it expanded, the cool, brittle outside of it cracked. And those are what we think of as the continental plates, whereas the, uh, and, and this allowed the oceans to open up and so forth. And what's interesting is that scientists are now finding that there's actually something like anywhere between one and five or six times the ocean's worth of water, which is underneath and down in the mantle below the crust, right? It's, it's bound up in these minerals, but it is water. It's not fluid water like we would think of, but it's pressurized into position and all this water is locked in. So there is a conceivable mechanism all of a sudden for this to have happened. And people meaning, are getting people are getting this hip to, to it. have happened, meaning that like as the planet expanded, you have all this magma that's on the bottom of the ocean floors, and the magma is losing its water, and that's where the oceans come from. And it explains why the crust at the bottom of the oceans is only two hundred million years old. Like we live on a planet that's estimated to be four and a half billion, but the oceans are only two hundred million years old. And so there's this weird thing that I mean, the answer is continental drift has eaten up the floors of the ocean because they act as this conveyor belt. But there's all these problems with finding the mechanism for that. And so it always comes down to mechanism. If you have a scientific theory and your mechanism isn't panning out, you have to start thinking about alternative I mean, theories. scientists, when I was growing up, they said the oceans came from us getting smashed with comets. And if you just think mm -hmm. about that for a few seconds, like when I was a kid and I heard that, I was like, I don't know about that. That's a lot of water. Like if you think about the size of a comet and Honestly, people have kind of moved away from that I think recently. it's an asteroid. No, they thought they came from comets. But isn't, a co isn't a comet defined by the fact that it doesn't hit the Earth? So comets are, you're thinking of meteoroids versus asteroids. So comets differ from oh, meteors. because it's the structure of the object. Of, yeah, so icy comets are icy, icy, meteors are rocky. Yeah. Or not meteors, sorry, asteroids are rocky. It's stupid stuff. Yeah, don't worry about it. There's a lot of different types of objects crashing into us. That was a very long answer, which I sorry. hoped would be delivered in a more succinct way. I'm very mm. sorry. No, uh, no <laughs> need to apologize because I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I would pay very good money to watch these two teach a course together, which yes. I guess is why you have a podcast, right? <laughs> exactly. And the last time I took a science class would have been a geology class in undergrad. I didn't take anything science related in grad school. And it was taught by somebody who just came in and like smacked a packet down on our desk and was like, all right, how about it? And like I learned about geology. So that kind of dispelled my interest in science. So did the two of you just Such sit around a common and common experience? Yeah. Did the two of you just sit around and like pontificate with one another? This is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, this is our life yeah, pretty much. I mean, we work on a lot of different things. So like we're interested in all sorts of I mean, this is happening all over science, is like what I want to like really underscore is these fundamental ideas are shifting under our mm -hmm. feet. And there's so many of them, like down to like any place you look and we're like really interested in the atom and we're really interested in the planets and we're really interested in the nuances of, of society and how biology plays out at the human scale and so yeah we basically just nerd out 100 percent of the time and it's 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 really hard to find people in person who are interested in talking about the same stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's mm. something that we've really, really lucked out because we have these same interests. And it might be something to do because we met during grad school. But I've never, I, I said this recently, like before I met Shiloh, I felt so weird in the world. I was like, I would try, I think, you know, I was the kid who was at parties in college and was like, so have you thought about the Armenian genocide recently? 
oh, which like didn't <laughs> like it didn't play well. And then I meet Shiloh, and it's like it's somebody who's as weird intellectually as I am. And so at first it was really tricky because he stumbled on. He kind of opened the Pandora's box of like, hey, I don't think that science is as certain as we think it is. Mm. And it was really painful for me. Like we fought a lot about this because and because the way that you would deliver stuff is like one time I remember this is one of my favorite fights. We were um, sitting around and talking about the moon. And he was like, there is no way that it is a coincidence that the moon can make a perfect eclipse of the sun. That is that is definitely significant. And I was like, how can you say that? Like, what is your evidence for that? What is your mechanism for that being significant? Like, what, lay, lay this out for Well, it has me. the same angular diameter as the sun, which I, is pretty remarkable. It is very remarkable. And I just, like, I think that I was so focused on the delivery of it. Because it's true. It's weird. And it probably is significant. But I'm like, yo, it's probably significant. Like, we can start there, but definitely. And so it took a really <laughs> long time for me to be able to play with ideas where I was like, Hey, this actually is really interesting, and I can I can set aside the language of certainty, put it into the frame of possibility, and then play with the idea. And it's so. I sometimes I worry. We're really trying to move the the sled and like make people realize that science is about what's possible. It's never about what is so for sure, and it's been completely abused because the thing is, nobody knows the difference between engineering and science, and they're mm-hmm. very different enterprises, right? Yeah. So, what do you guys think? Okay. Pop quiz. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> What's the difference between science and engine? Science and technology. Technology is science enacted. In motion. Yeah, Same like as applied. engineering. Yeah. Yes, right. applied yeah, science yeah. is engineering. Okay. Yeah, I like that. It's like that. That is true. But what's also true is you can do a lot of engineering without any science, right? So if you think about like people just figuring out how to make a bow and arrow in the first place, right? Those people mm. had no concept of aerodynamics or anything. What they did was they just tried different builds. They tweaked little pieces of it, you know, a little more string, a little more length here, try, changed the shape of the arrow. And that's how most technology is actually produced. And <clears throat> that's how most technology is actually produced in the world. But science is really concerned with this question of like, what happened here, right? Mm. How does this natural process work? How does a magnet work? How do these magic inherent like these seemingly magical things actually go down? And it's like not what is the equation that governs their behavior because mm. that we know how to parameterize really well. Like the 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 question of science is fundamentally a philosophical one mm. because it is the question of the story that you tell about the mathematical equation. What right. does the math mean, right? And the technologists don't give a damn about what the math means. They're like, yo, this works. Like, this equation describes how this electric circuit works. That's good enough. We don't care if we know what an electron really is. Or, or what charges or any of these other questions. They're like, it works. It's fine. Why are you asking this? So back to grad school, was there a particular topic that led to you feeling disillusioned? I had a really weird experience mm. with my boss where I was studying electrical communication in bacteria. So I would like grow these biofilms and we were studying like this molecule that changed its oxidation state depending on where it was in the biofilm. And then it would affect gene expression and the, the, the gene expression would create different structures inside the biofilm. And a lot of that 
worked through the electron transport chain, which is the metabolic center of the bacteria. And it's electrical in nature because it's what it is, is that you have all of these metallic proteins that have these, these, these antennas inside of them that resonate and somehow drive current. And then there's all of this other change that happens. And I remember spending a lot of time talking to him about what was actually happening on a physical level. Because a lot of our theories were based on the importance of one chemical versus another and the role of electricity in metabolism. And I It's was, all very schematized, right? Very Just schematized. like we were saying with the math, it's all very much like describing what is happening in a way that can be parameterized so you can ultimately make technology out of it. We were using equations that when I was asking what the equations represented and what they meant and how they applied, because whenever you do cell culture or bacterial culture, you always have other ions around, mm -hmm. but those ions don't seem to have an effect on metabolism in the same way, but you would expect them to be similarly uh, electrically sensitive. And so my question was, why is there a difference in one electricity versus another? And but like, moreover, I remember you got in a fight with your boss because you were just like, well, what's an electron? And he's just like, that's not what we're concerned with here, you know? And it was mm -hmm. like, it was kind of tragic, like, just shutting, and most people shut down the conversation. I mean, I was a very bad scientist. And so I have, <laughs> I have, I have come to terms, uh, experimentalist, I was a very bad experimentalist. I hated doing experiments. I don't like doing the same thing twice, the same way, ever. And that is the antithesis of what a good scientist is. And I have made my peace with that. This is not an imposter syndrome thing. It's like I just don't have the, 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 the detail-oriented drive towards it. I'm a theories person, but I was doing molecular biology. And so like, I, I, have, I have come to forgive him for all of the arguments that we had, and I recognize that I was a very, very, very difficult student. But it's like terribly frustrating to get to something in science and be told like it doesn't matter. And you're like, whoa, 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 that's like the thing I'm curious about. Yeah. And especially when, so these fundamental concepts like charge, you know, they're totally abandoned. There's no place in the university that studies these kind of questions. It's not interesting. The philosophers tell you it's physics. The physicists tell you it's philosophy. Mm -hmm. There's literally no, it's a homeless inquiry, right? So... Yeah. So we're like, wow, nobody's doing this. Like, let's do it. Yeah. And I think for you two, it just, it's such a great example of the two of you embodying what it's like to continue asking why questions beyond just when you're five, right? That it's so important to continue asking what's the reasoning behind this, not just accepting the information that you're given. And that seems like very much the two of you. And that's how science should be. You know, it should be understandable to a child, honestly. It sh we should really be making up stories that can be understood that don't terminate in you have to do a bunch of math to get this so yeah, yeah that's and our war. when i first reached out to you guys I, I was happy to have you guys talk about whatever this is far more fascinating than i thought anything <laughs> would be that we were going to talk about but one of the things that we wanted to hit on today for our listeners was climate change no big deal not a small topic for conversation <laughs> Can you guys talk a little bit about specifically uh, where we're headed with climate change, what our listeners can do to mitigate it, et cetera, et cetera? We could play good cop, bad cop here. That'd be good. Okay. I mean, actually, I don't think we can because we agree too much. I mean, <laughs> the thing, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think that the 
this these kind of conversations need to be reoriented a little bit mm -hmm. because at the heart of it, what do we care about? We care about having a beautiful world that's harmonious, where we have nature and we're living with nature, and we're not poisoning our our wells, and we're not poisoning our air, and we're not poisoning our food. Right? These this is really what we're all really can, everyone can agree on that from every angle of the climate change discussion. We're not happy with poisoning ourselves. We're burning stuff for for fuel because that just it just seems so stone age. Like I think about the idea that in order to get power, you burn stuff, and that it just it feels anachronistic in how old fashioned it seems. And it seems like a little bit of a crime to just fixate on a single molecule out of thousands of toxic molecules. You know, I understand. Uh, that there's an argument. To, I mean, I understand that CO2 is a very interesting molecule in this story, but there's so many molecules that are immediately affecting us, you know, and these microplastics, the t stuff that comes off your tires, the petroleum products, the combustion products. There's no fish in the ocean okay, anymore. Even the fashion industry, like the waste from the fashion industry, like, right, these are, these are things that have massive impacts. And so if immediate impacts. immediate, and so if the, if the question is, what can the audience do about climate change? What I would say is learn to talk about it in a way that builds coalitions rather than vilifies others. Because what happens is that you create CO2 as the rallying point for an environmental movement because of a couple of things. It is a, an easily measurable metric. You can have detectors that just look at levels in the atmosphere so you can, you can quantify it. Then you can create technologies that mitigate it mm. without requiring you to shift too much else about the material basis of your civilization. You're still using the same resources, you're still generating all your waste, you're still throwing things away without putting them back and recycling them into a circular economy. You're not changing anything fundamental because you've given these companies the right to buy what amounts to a Catholic indulgence. Mm -hmm. You can sin, but you can buy forgiveness. And everybody mm. feels good about it because they buy things that they, they offset their carbon. They do the right thing and I'm doing the right thing by buying this. But what's really happening is that the carbon offset marketplace is kind of scammy. People are misusing it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of well, ways. Those same companies can just be like dumping absolute toxic waste into your products and they can still have a green badge if the you know they, it's really this industrially convenient fixation on carbon dioxide i'm not saying carbon dioxide is not important in the climate of course it is but the the obsession with it at the exclusion of everything else is really scary to me it's scary specifically because it drives polarization like as soon as you as soon as you plant a flag that is a flag that is based on trusting the science you then open the door for people to be like well hey science is really politicized consensus is a fashionable thing as much as it is a a a, a real data driven thing and you have people that can organize themselves around being the antithesis to the idea of science driven policy and i'm like the goal here is to make the world better. And if you acknowledge that there are many ways to make the world better and that the science will probably shift, we see this all the time. When somebody starts to question climate science and people start to react to them like they're idiots for questioning it, 
I have spent, we have spent so much time talking to people who have alternative theories and they're not idiots. They have really good points. Mm. But what they, and most of them recognize that even if CO2 is not the greatest, most dangerous thing on our planet today, and the science is wrong about that, we still have a moral imperative to make the world better. And the same industrial processes that we're, we're pointing out for CO2 are the ones that are creating all of these other problems too. And so, like, at its heart, every single person on Earth can get behind the idea that poisoning their own drinking water is a terrible idea, or poisoning their food, poisoning their backyard. You know, these, this is what we should all be fixated on. Like, they did these crazy studies in, in the Netherlands, and they, they uh, looked at the chemical buildup inside of dog testes. And so they had this reproductive tissue and they found that it was filled with PFAS, it was filled with plastics, it's filled oh. with all these endocrine, but it's, it's everywhere, And right? human fertility is like down through in yep. the gutter right mm -hmm. now. I mean, yep. this is no joke. We were actually just like watching some old, old movies of people, I think from like the 70s or not from the 80s, I guess. And we were just like, man, they have really nice skin. Like, <laughs> why, why does everybody have such terrible skin now all of a sudden? Oh. And it's like kind of creepy. It was like, man, I think there's something not good in the food supply or something these days. But I have a feeling that you said something earlier where you were like, the stuff is full of toxins or is poisons. And I don't, I, that doesn't 100% pan out because if you test the food supply, it's not full of things that we already know to be poisonous. Yeah, yeah sorry, I should clarify it. And so what I think is happening, and I think you agree on this, is that there's stuff that we either, A, don't know is poisonous. Yeah, we don't understand mm. it. Or it's, poison it's, it's like hurting us in a way that we don't understand. Or B, it's things that have not been scheduled yet for surveillance. Because if there's, you know, like when Teflon came out, Mm -hmm. There was the, um, I think that it was the, they had some kind of like C4 molecule that DuPont was dumping in the Ohio River. And they knew that they were dumping it and they knew that it was carcinogenic. And this is what the movie, I think, Dark Waters was about. Yes. With Mark Ruffalo. Mm -hmm. Very good movie. Yes. Um, but so they knew all of this stuff, but they weren't controlled by the EPA because it was a patented chemical that was being produced in-house, but it was mm. being distributed all over the place. And so if you have something like that that we haven't found yet, Excuse me, I'm sorry. If you have something like that that we haven't found yet, how would you how would you know? It's undetectable. It's there, but we we haven't seen it yet. And the only thing that we can see is the side effects. And as people focus on climate change, and fo or not climate change, as they focus on CO2 as the sole determinant, we're in a position where people are fighting over whether or not it's CO2, as opposed to ringing the bell and being like, whatever, we have to figure it out because it can't just be this. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, things are getting hotter and things will change and we need to be ready for that and we need to create more resilient systems. But I think that the best, most resilient system is a healthy biosphere. It is a planet that can fix itself, that has an immune system that is working, that is not like suffering from auto autoimmune disease, really. This is ridiculously refreshing. I know. I, like, I was just thinking to myself, I'm like, I could talk to you guys all day because you offer such a great argument that combines both of the polarized opinions that we're used to. And I'm like, okay, you, you automatically Hashtag understand. extreme centrism. <laughs> I'm about to go through all of your podcasts and like download them after this. Mm -hmm. Check it out. We can all get behind it. You know, I think that's that's what's really important in the world right now is that we, we focus on all the, the interests that we have in common because 
a lot of the systems that are in place are screwing everybody. Yes. And it's, in, mm. it's important to fixate on that because, you know, those same systems control a lot of the information flow and they're not going to have us realize that otherwise unless we really stand up and, and take account of what's actually happening here, which is not necessarily what's being fixated on. And more than anything, I think it's about building a coalition because you cannot move forward if your entire identity is against something. As we wrap up, obviously MK and I will now be downloading all of your episodes. How can people best get in touch with you from our audience? The Demystify Sci podcast. If you just Google Demystify Sci or the Demystify Sci podcast, you find yeah, us. Yeah, we have social. We're we easy we to have get to. like Instagram and Twitter, and it's all under Demystify Sci. Uh, we don't we really have a use website. Instagram. We don't. I mean, but all Maybe that we stuff will. that it's, it gets funneled to Facebook. Mm. We have mm. a big Facebook group called Demystify Sci. So basically just put Demystify Sci into any search bar anywhere and you will find us. Our email address is media at demystifyingscience.com. No, you really can get silly. out of this Demystify Sci no, at Gmail. Demystify Sci at Gmail, yeah, there you go. Demystify Sci everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for joining us. We Thank will be you. knocking down your door to have you guys on again. We appreciate you so much. And guys, stay tuned for more content from What's Up Universe. <laughs>